In this episode of the show, we're going to be talking about five cheap things that you can do in order to create expensive sound in my interview with Joe Gilder. That's coming up on Home Music Studio One. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. You are listening or watching the Home Music Studio podcast. My name is David Maxey, and you can also find us online at homemusicstudio1.com. You are officially listening or watching episode number 29. It's good to be back with you or maybe with you for the very first time today. And uh, I'm just going to dive right into where I want to go today. I've been actually looking forward to recording this episode for two main reasons. Number one, uh, we are coming up on uh, in just a few short months away from being the two-year anniversary of the, the starting of Home Music Studio One. And in all that time, this is the very first episode that I have actually had an interview on the show. And so I'm kind of excited about that and maybe just a little bit nervous as well. Uh, but number two, my guest on the show today really has uh, a lot to add to the table in the arena of affordable home recording and creating professional recording. And so, uh, you know, I think about it this way. Uh, my guest here today has been doing this actually, I believe, since 2009 as far as the blog side and, and providing information uh, is, is helping those that are trying to find affordable ways to create professional recordings, helping home studios excel. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of it like this. If you've been blogging for uh, any amount of time, then you know that it's kind of like dog years. One year of blogging on the internet is like seven years real life. So if you've been on the internet for several years, uh, since 2009, such as our guest has been, then uh, you really do have a lot to add to the table. And with that, uh, I want to welcome Joe Gilder. How you doing, Joe? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me. Good. I am glad. Uh, thanks for reaching out and, and taking this opportunity. Uh, Joe, let's start here. Uh, let's just take a second and, uh, and give us the best uh, kind of 60 second you can. Who is Joe? And uh, just for those listeners who may not be aware of what you're up to and what you're doing and, and those kind of things. So give us, uh, give us a 60 second 411 about you. Okay. So Joe in 60 seconds. Um, I'm a musician, audio engineer, songwriter. Um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I run a website called homestudiocorner.com where I teach home recording techniques to folks specifically with home studios to help them get better recordings. I've been doing that for four years now. So I guess that's what, 28 in your dog years. So yeah, uh, <laughs> ancient, I suppose. Um, and I, I love what I do. I do, um, I'm an, a songwriter musician myself. So a lot of music I work on is my own stuff. Uh, and I also do work for clients all around the world. And uh, but Home Studio Corner is kind of my baby. That's where I, I just I love what I do. I love getting to help people and seeing people make better recordings as a result of it. It's pretty cool. Right, right, awesome. Well, um, great. Let's uh, let's head on into then where I want to go today and what I Joe and I kind of chatted a little bit. One of the things about Home Music Studio One that I'm hugely passionate about is uh is is kind of working this playing field it's now been more of a level playing field back in the days i remember the early years of, of recording and analog days and i remember uh the 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 first time i heard about this this thing that you could get for your computer and totally burn your own cds <laughs> and uh, i was just like man that is awesome but we have come so far technology wise and the the playing field is leveled for guys like you guys like uh me and many that are listening uh, literally thousands all over the world i'm sure uh if not more than that uh 
as far as just the ability to have affordable gear and produce professional things, and that's what I'm all about. So I've I've asked Joe to kind of give us uh, some things that that we can do. I've kind of termed it like this: What are some cheap things that we can do to create expensive sound? And so uh, I'm going to just turn it back to you, Joe, and go ahead and uh, and I know you got a list of some things to share with us. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, let's hear what you got. Yeah. Well, I love the idea when you said what are cheap ways to get expensive sound. At first, I thought, Duh! Why didn't I think of that? That's a great, it's a great turn of phrase. So, um, and that's that's exactly. I mean, I think that's the right question. I think too many people, uh, if you're listening to this, you may fall into this category too. You think you've got to go out and get nicer whatever in order to get a good recording. And it's it's so oftentimes not true. I, I tell this story a lot. When I worked for Sweetwater Sound selling gear, uh, I sold a guy, I forget which mic it was, but it was a several thousand dollar Neumann. I can't remember which one it was. Um, uh, I can't remember, but he... Uh, he got it and did a recording and sent it sent it to me to to listen to and to kind of show off what he'd done with his new mic and it sounded just horrible right. like he had put right. a big wool sock over the mic and then recorded something it was just unbelievably bad actually and and the mic wasn't defective it was just i guess it was just the technique or something else but so it right. just as a as a a case to prove the point that you really the gear is important but it's not nearly as important as some of the other things we're going to talk about so i've got a list here of Basically, five, five specific, uh, pretty effective ways uh, to get a better sound. Generally, using the stuff that you already have, and so they're right. cheap, inexpensive ways to get a really high end sound. So the first awesome. is is a given, uh, but a lot of people skip over this, and that's to just spend time getting to know your gear. Uh, that you have, whether you have a ton of gear or you've got one microphone and one place to plug it in. Whatever the case is, the, that piece of gear has several different tones to it. Uh, for example, um, I was mastering an album last week for a client who he actually came to the studio afterward, and people were asking him how he recorded the acoustic guitar. And we're all guessing a small diaphragm condenser or maybe a large diaphragm. He used an SM57, and the guitars right. are nice and they're bright. They're everything you'd think you wouldn't be able to get with a dynamic mic. And right. uh, it's stories like that that just get me fired up because that shouldn't, most people would never even attempt and even reach for the 57 on acoustic guitars. But in this mix, it worked right. really well. And you wouldn't know that unless you grabbed the mic and tried it on a bunch of stuff and really got to know what you have. Uh, right. Yeah, it, it, it's especially, especially with microphones. I think it works some with preamps and different tones you can get, but especially mics. I mean, you can de- determine that, you know, facing a mic directly on to a guitar cabinet sounds one way angled at 45 degrees is a completely different tone. It's as if you have several different microphones in one and you just, you would never know that if you just went out and bought a new mic every time you wanted a new sound. Right. And so, you know, just kind of along them lines, helping guys that, okay, how, how do I get to know my gear kind of pieces together? I mean, you just mentioned taking 157 and just moving it a little bit one way up, down, left, right. Uh, you know, we might have some general starting points. A lot of times recording acoustic, uh, you might be, you know, eight, 12, 12 inches off, uh, aimed at where your your neck meets the bridge, mm-hmm. but that may be just a, a starting point. Sure, and uh, you know, getting to know your gear, taking time to experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's a project or not, just just spending time uh, and seeing the different sounds and the tones that you get with what you have. That, that's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, we've all had those happy accidents where you accidentally did something and it <laughs> yeah. sounded awesome. And the more of those you can make yourself have, I think, the better off you'll be. You'll have this big, kind of quiver full of stuff that you can try on the next, whatever your next session right. is. Yeah. That stuff's right. awesome. Awesome. 
So the second one I have is, uh, is to just remove entirely the whole fix it in the mix mentality. So remove those words from your vocabulary. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Um, I don't know if it's a Nashville thing. I'm, I'm guessing it's not, but you know, you, they record a take. Oh, hey, I didn't really quite hit that part. Ah, we'll just fix it in the mix. Oh, we'll just fix it in the mix. And it becomes this, mo- you should write a theme song for it. You could probably make a lot of money because yeah. you hear it so <laughs> right. much. Whoever first said it um, should trademark it because it's, it's a prevalent saying everywhere. And yes, there are things you can do. You know, if I come in uh, on guitar and I come in just a hair too early, but the rest of the take is awesome, yes, I can go edit that that one note, get it in line, it's in the pocket, everything's great. That That's right. one side of the coin where that, that phrase does hold some truth. But the other side, if it's just a horrible guitar tone, I'm not, I may be able to repair it a little bit and get it somewhat usable, but it's not going to be awesome in the mix if it's not awesome when I laid it down. And people, yeah, right. yeah, people don't want to believe that. I don't think they want to say, "Oh, yeah, 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 I get that, I get that." But teach me another mixing trick, and I, I keep coming back. No, that's <laughs> that's you know, you see, uh, you watch like a Dave Pensado video and think, well, of course his mixes sound great because all these tracks sound great. And at first, you want to get hung up on that and think, oh, he's, mm-hmm. it's the game is rigged. He's not a great mix engineer. He just has great <laughs> tracks. And if you if you just carry that thought all the way back, the the thing you should take away is not oh, they have something I don't have, it's, oh, I get it. It's the tracks are of such utmost importance to whether or not this mix is going to turn out well or not. Right, Um, right. And I could just, I could stay on that soapbox for days because it's, you know, I've seen it in my own work when I've, um, when I recorded acoustic guitars for a couple albums ago, I was in such a hurry to get all 10 songs recorded in an afternoon, right? I was just, let's set up the mics. It sounded okay, recorded them all. And so then a few weeks later, I come back to start, working on other stuff and every single guitar track was really boomy had way too much low end i was i never listened on anything but my headphones it sounded big and huge in the headphones and that translated to just boomy and awful otherwise right and so right. i spent probably half the time mixing those songs just fixing that guitar tone and i only got it to a point where it was kind of okay you know where it was good enough to go on a record. I didn't go back and retrack everything. I was too far in the process. But um, whereas, fast forward to the last album I put out last year, I spent a ton of time with a single microphone and a guitar and finding that sweet spot where it sounded great. Mm-hmm. And I was just mixing, remixing one of those songs for a workshop the other day. And I, all I did on the acoustic guitar in that mix was a high pass filter at about 120. And I tried a few other things, and none of them worked because it just it needed to be left alone because it sounded right for the mix. Right. Yeah. Right. Also, I, I think there's there's one other aspect that I would kind of add to that. I think uh, some of this gets to to the the time that you spend as a musician. The older you get, the more experience you get. There, there's the recording side of the technique, but also when uh, you know you talk about don't just fix it in the mix. Another thing I could think of is is things like tuning, particularly like uh, drums are notorious. Uh, for, you know, why can't I get this amazing drum sound, even with good technique, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's getting it right at the source, learning how to tune your drum kit, even acoustic guitar, any instrument that requires some kind of maintenance upkeep. Those are all, uh, you know, things that we definitely need to, to be aware of as well. And they, they certainly do play into the getting it right at the source and not, you know, well, I'm just going to fix it in post. And, uh, yeah, that, that's great. That's good stuff. Yeah. And you could apply it to just cheaper equipment or specifically cheaper like instruments and amps and whatnot um right the the really plastic sounding guitar will always sound really plasticky whether you throw a u87 in front of it or a 
fifty dollar right. yeah. Radio Shack mic. It, it's right. those. That's a part of that getting it right the source thing. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Okay, so let's go to number three. Um, this one is kind of along the lines of the previous one, but it, it has it deserves its own category. So this is to record the right parts. And another way of putting it is arrangement really does trump any sort of cool mixing tricks down the road. Um, and this is something that I, I struggle with because when you when you first learn about how to double parts, like if that guitar sounded great and then I doubled it, it sounded even better. I'm going to double everything right. I ever record for right. the rest of my life. And you end up with just <laughs> big, huge walls of everything. And it suddenly it just becomes this kind of just mess. And I think right. some of my favorite albums, favorite recordings, favorite mixes I've ever done have been from people who knew how to do that arrangement and where the song okay. told me where it wanted to go much more than I had to go in. And, you know, there was... 50 tracks and they all play for the whole four minutes of the song. And I had to go mute, mute these eight guitars during this verse to let it have some room to grow and build and all that stuff. Right. It's so much easier and so much better when that's done on the front end. And they've, they've figured out an arrangement that can, if, if it's the kind of song that needs to build and grow and get huge by the end of the, you know, that last course, um, they've right. done the, the, the work in the recording end. So when you just pull up the faders to listen, it already has that dynamic built in and you don't have to go manufacture it after the fact. Um, I think that's right. a huge, huge thing that people kind of gloss over or they think we'll figure it out as we're recording. And sometimes you do and you need to leave room to just experiment with stuff. And a lot of cool stuff happens that way. But um, sure, if you like I'm, I'm a primarily an acoustic guitar guy, but I can I play electric and I tend to just play the whole song when I play electric, which is horrible. It shows no self-control whatsoever, <laughs> especially if it's live. I'm, there's a guitar in my hand. I should be making a sound. But the guys that do it really well, the guys who know when they'll stop playing for a minute and a half because yeah. it's the right thing for the song. I think that's a that's an important right. skill that just takes takes a lot of time and practice and a lot of listening to start to hear where those things are supposed to happen. Right, right. So for the guy that's just maybe kind of starting out in the musician side of things, you know, it's got a few songs, the gal, whatever, uh, and, and just that temptation to play and kind of create that wall of sound. Um I mean, you know, I, I always kind of think of the idea of you've got these studio musicians, your your most favorite album that you can hear was typically recorded by someone who spent hours perfecting their craft. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that really can help us when we learn how to kind of the production side of it, how much is too much is listening to things very intricately. Mm -hmm. well, I, I just heard one little keyboard line like right here. It's just in this one little spot or, uh, you know, the, the drummer's not doing all this crazy stuff, but just a straight, mm -hmm. you know, four on the floor and knocking out the beat. Yeah. Uh, you know, are there any, any other things that, that you could think of that would really help when, when that person is learning kind of how do I produce my stuff from the musical side? Uh, what's maybe another thing that could really help learn as they're, they're trying to begin that process, do you think? I think if you can somehow work with somebody who's done either, so from my experience, one of the things that really helped me was working with a guy named Tim Horsley here in town. He's a good friend of mine, great okay. drummer. He's toured with Keith Urban and some of those bigger country acts. Um, was a really solid drummer, um, great chops. And right. he started, he set up a pretty nice studio at his house for recording drums. So all my drums are now go through him. That's just, it's a, they okay. sound good. He plays well. But a lot of times when on that last album I was doing, I'm sitting over there with my headphones, you know, sitting on the floor, listening to him play these, just to a guitar and a vocal. And I'm thinking, man, it's such a simple it's too simple. You're, you're not playing all these crazy fills and stuff. You're supposed to be this, <laughs> right. this amazing drummer. Why are you playing it so straight? And right. fast forward a few months when the album's released and it's, you, it, it clicks. You know, he knew yeah. when, when it needed to be 
crazy, hey, here's Tim showing off, and when it needed to be just rock solid on the beat. And so I think if you can right. align yourself with musicians like that who maybe have some experience knowing, because a lot of it's not a recording technique thing as it is just musicians in a band. So I'm not yeah, in a right. band. I mean, I right. play at my church on Sundays and, and things like that, but I'm not in a regular band that's playing day in and day out. The guys who do that sure. stuff, they know a lot of times the, the the good ones will know when to lay out, when to sit back and how to build an arrangement yeah, right. um, from scratch, so to speak. That, so I think between bet. that and like you said, it's a great, I think if you were to go back, anybody listening to this, pick your favorite album, whether it's, you know, uh, U2, Joshua Tree or whatever, Wallflowers, Bringing Down the Horse, and just go sit, pick your favorite song and listen and take notes. As nerdy as it sounds, take notes or even, I've done this before when I was in school for audio, get a piece of paper, turn it sideways and just draw the stereo spectrum. So where's the vocal? Draw it on the screen and kind of in circles. So if it's a really up front, draw a big circle down towards the bottom. And if it's farther away, draw it back and kind of do a visual representation of where all the instruments sit. And it's a really interesting thing because you realize, oh, I never realized that the dobro was panned all the way to the left and it's balanced over here to the right by that fiddle part. And you just don't, you don't think about that when you're listening because you're just into the music, but that arrangement and where they put things and where they didn't put things and how scarce or how sparse some of those arrangements tend to be, uh, it's pretty revealing. Um, it's like guys who, who tend to play super heavy guitar and really overdriven and you tell them, Hey, go, go listen to back in black and listen to the guitar tone there. It's, it's, it's aggressive, but it's not this super white noise, heavy, heavy distortion. It's a, it's relatively clean and you kind of go there and you think, Oh, Oh, or you listen to like John Bonham play the drums. There's never this big, huge pounding kick drum. It's more this organic roomy sort of kick, right? It doesn't hit you in the gut, right? Yeah. but clearly that drum tone is awesome. So I think it's just kind of taking yourself out of what you think is reality and listening critically, especially in your studio through your speakers and getting to hear what your favorite records really do sound like. And that can help over time. You kind of brainwash yourself into starting to do that kind of stuff on your own music too. Yeah, you bet. Super helpful. Great idea. Awesome. Great idea. So number four, uh, this is something you, you may not struggle with or you might, is go easy on the compressor. I think it's one of those, compression is one of those things. And David, I know you've got that, uh, your ebook that you give away that explains compression, which is such a, when you first try to understand it, it just blows your mind and confuses you. And yeah. you say, no, that's not for me. And then you start to learn some of the cool things you can do. And then suddenly you compress everything as much as humanly possible because it sounds, sounds good to you at the time. Um, and right. that, that's it. I think everybody has to go through that. But if you find yourself compressing a whole lot of stuff with a whole lot of gain reduction happening, probably chances are it's, it's hurting more than it's helping. And uh, I think one, one suggestion is to just back off the compressor, maybe turn it off entirely. Or one thing I talk about a lot is, is what I kind of call mixing backwards, where if you were going to compress the kick and the snare and the overheads or something in the room mic, what if you put a compressor on your drum bus and did a fair amount of compression there? And maybe that takes care of a lot of that compressed sound you were going for without having to do a ton of compression, if any, on the individual kick, snare, toms, hi-hat, things like that. No, hi-hat, but, um, and that's something that's worked really well for me to the point where I may have a mix where I don't put a compressor anywhere but on the main buses for my mix. And it's, it doesn't work on all styles of music, but it's definitely something worth trying, especially if you're, you raised your hand and say, yeah, I use too much compression. Right. 
Yeah, one of the other things I, I constantly, I remember this all the time from uh, Dave Pensato talking about sim- similar along them lines. One of the things that can kind of help is, is the idea of, uh, like you talk about using a bus compressor, maybe you do have a snare that needs a little bit more control or something, but rather than having it just all in one area, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you need a little compression on the snare, just do a little bit and do, I think he words it as kind of the heavy lifting, not one compressor doing mm-hmm. anything, but at different points, such as your bus. Uh, you know, maybe you're you're doing some parallel compression or, or, or things like that. So yeah, uh, that's good stuff. It is super helpful. I think the the temptation is, uh, you know, in, in everything in life. I remember the first time I discovered uh, my parents were gone and I knew how to make, um, they were sugar cookies. And my <laughs> sister and I totally just went to town on like two dozen sugar cookies. All right. We, we've, they're awesome. Yeah. Right. And we threw up like the whole next day. You know, it's the same kind of idea. It's like you, you, you get used to something immediately you think, wow, this is making a difference in my mm-hmm. mix. This sounds great. I just got to keep doing that, keep doing that. And before you know it, uh, it's overkill and, you, and you've, you've fried, uh, you know, you've overcompressed everything. So yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Uh, I think we all need to definitely hear that. If you use sure. too much compression, you heard it here the next day, you'll be throwing up all day. So. Yep. You got it. You heard it for your first. <laughs> and I think another, another kind of twist on that would be, um, I was doing a mixing workshop at my studio over the weekend and the, uh, all the stuff I was doing was, was pretty subtle things. They made a difference, but it wasn't no single plugin made a huge difference to the tone. And one guy commented, he's like, it's right. kind of like the whole death by a thousand cuts thing. You know, you didn't do any one, you couldn't say this is why the mix sounds the way it does. It's all these little small changes. And sometimes you need big changes. Yeah. Sometimes you need big, huge, awful compression for an effect or something. But in general, like you said, it's those little, those little tiny, subtle, uh, what's the word where they compound over time? There's a great word for that cumulative there we go the cumulative (laughs) effect of all those things ends up being awesome anyway okay so number five the final thing that i uh, that i wanted to share with you as far as another cheap-ish inexpensive way to get an expensive sound is to avoid being a boostaholic so you know we talked about compression first but eq is kind of the bigger culprit i think uh when people first start out because everybody knows how to use an eq you know your mom with the car radio knows that that one slider for for bass makes it boomier, you know, and the other one makes it brighter or whatever. So, but we never, you almost never see anybody taking those and turning them down. It's always, I need more bass or I need more highs. And so we kind of apply that. And I know for me, when I was first starting out mixing, that's all I did. I said, well, this sounds bad, which gets back to what we talked about earlier. Let's make it not sound bad before we get to this point. But this needs some help. Like a drum, for example, let's say it's a kick drum. And so we think it's not quite as punchy as I want it to be. So we'll go boost 80 hertz. Okay, that's better, but now I can't hear the click. So let's go boost 1K. Well, now it's not quite balanced enough. Let's just keep boosting until there's this 12 dB boost in both spots. And now we're blowing out all our meters right. and compressors right. going crazy. So we got to dial everything back again. And it's, a, it's an awful dance that yeah. you play with yourself. So instead of doing that, try to, try to cut first. Try to take the things you don't want and remove them. And then you have permission, so to speak, to boost. And for me, when I started doing that, it instantly made a bigger impact. So the kick drum example, if I just cut that boxiness there at 400 hertz, suddenly I don't have to boost the lows and the highs anymore because that was really, the real problem was that mid-range was clouding what I I couldn't hear the low end and that snap on the top end because of the mid-range. So cutting that out left me a bunch of room to, to hear what I really wanted to hear. So the idea of, you know, subtractive EQ, removing things first before you boost, um, 
make can make a huge I mean if if you don't listen to anything else in this podcast that that alone could have a huge impact on your mixes. Right. From from your perspective in light of that I mean I I think if I'm honest I would I would think that uh, the more I, I practice the technique of what you just talked about, it's actually more difficult to learn how to build a good mix by cutting. It takes more more practice, as you put it mm-hmm. that way, uh, to to actually learn the changes that you're making rather than just drive something up. I mean, you find that it maybe is a little more challenging to learn how to cut as a, as a default rather than boost. I think it absolutely is challenging. If you do those those hearing tests where like what frequency was just cut. I never know what they cut. If they boost something, I might be able to get close, but, but yeah, you don't hear cuts nearly as much, but you also, when you hear people just starting out mixing, everything tends to sound pretty hyped. The highs are boosted. The the lows are boosted. There's a lot of muddiness and you're never going to fix. I think muddy mixes is kind of the, when people first come to my website and I'm sure you're the same way, my mixes are muddy. What do I do? And it's like, well, boosting's not, you can't boost your way out of a muddy mix. You've got to go take something out whether that's mm-hmm. recording it better so you don't capture as much low end, which is one thing, or you have, you're going to have to remove something and you just, you can't boost right. your way there. Now the, the idea, the, the example of a kick drum, boosting the lows and boosting the highs. Yeah. That's essentially the same thing as cutting the mids, but I think it's more of a mindset thing of, you know, right. what sounds good on this, this track in the context of listening to everything and what's getting in the way. And, and I feel like it, it, right. it'll lead you to mixing faster actually, instead of, of taking more time because instead of you just listen and say, okay, there's some muddiness here. What, which of these tracks has that muddiness going on? Let me go take that out until it doesn't feel muddy anymore. So then you're, instead of finding the good things and boosting them, you're just finding the bad things and taking them away, which I think if you did your job on the front end, recording it pretty well, then it becomes an easier process overall. But yeah, it's definitely a learn, a thing you got to learn. You got to wrestle with, you got to do a lot of boosting it, sweeping it around till you find that frequency and, a lot of times you think you know what 500 hertz sounds like, but you don't. You're way off. It's actually right. 200. Right. You thought it was 500. And if you don't know those things, that's something you got to spend a lot of time. P- pull a mix into your session of a song you like and just boost something and just sweep it. And you'll say, oh, that's what 200 hertz sounds like. I I, I was wrong. I, I've been boosting and cutting 200 when it was really 50 that I was actually looking for or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, no, Exactly. It's a, and it's a time thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it just takes doing it. Uh, I know you talked about uh, uh, one of your your latest videos of, of recording. I think, what, I don't know what your time frame was, but like 50 songs in a, uh, fill in the blank here for me. You were doing a lot of songs that you were writing and recording yeah. uh, in a short period of yeah, time. Yeah, actually, I'm writing. I'm in the process of writing 50 songs in 12 okay. weeks. Um, and right. then going to pick from that and do, do a record. Right. Yeah. And, and I know kind of it's same idea in the sense that a lot of, you know, maybe that's for some people, that's just astronomical. Mm-hmm. I mean, with me being in a family of seven, I wish I had the time to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of, uh, you know, you, you mentioned maybe taking a little flack for, well, doing it too much, isn't that going to down the quality mm-hmm. of all the other things? But it really gets back to the same concept of, of the more that you do it, the more practice you're getting mm-hmm. and the better you get at your craft. And, uh, you know, I certainly think of, in fact, I just pulled up one of the live recordings uh, I did from 2007. And at the time, and it was amazing. Uh, and, and listening to it now, 
yeah, uh, you know, it was a long, <laughs> long ways from here to there. Yeah. Let's just put it that way, you know. But it, it just takes time and practice, yeah. and and uh, all the things I think that you've mentioned are super helpful. But they're all things that that we, uh, you know, when when you're eager and you first get this this power in your hands to think to yourself, man, I can I can create my mm-hmm. own album now. I can create my own deal. It's easy to think, well, I can do that tomorrow. Uh, you know, why doesn't it sound like my my favorite band fill in the blank like mm-hmm. now? Uh, but then you you quickly realize it takes time and. and that's completely okay. Uh, the reality is you got to make a lot of bad mixes before you, you know, bother to make any good Absolutely. ones and, uh, and, and you just learn them. And so, um, Joe, I really appreciate you, uh, your, your input and, and just giving us uh, some info here. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, you honestly, you bring a lot to the table, uh, and, uh, I've, I've followed uh, your stuff for, um, uh, probably the last couple of years here. We're, we're, could, we're two months away from uh, being two years into the home music studio one podcast. And wow. so, uh, it's good to be, you know, have have uh, guys like you on board continuing to help the rest of us out as well as those of us are, are helping others. And, uh, you know, I feel like we're kind of doing this together. And, uh, and the more we, you know, interact, the, the more helpful that is uh, for all of us. And so um, before we let you go, if someone wants to find more information out about uh, Joe Gilder, um, wh- where can they go to, to do that? Easiest thing would be to just go to homestudiocorner.com. Um, I have a daily email okay. newsletter that I put out. Um, a lot of fun if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, there's plenty, there's, I think we're over a thousand posts of videos and articles and lots of, lots of places to get lost over there. But if you're into home recording, which if you're listening to this podcast, that's pretty much a given, um, there might be some stuff over there that might, might be helpful for you. Right. Awesome. Well, as Joe said, homestudiocorner.com. If you haven't signed up uh, for uh, his, his newsletter, uh, you can put some great stuff out there. Uh, Joe writes in such a way it's real personable. Uh, one of the things I love about what Joe does is everything seems to kind of be like a life story, and then he twists <laughs> it around to be about recording. And uh, so, you know, super helpful. Uh, so make sure you get on that list, and uh, there'll be definitely some good info there for you. Uh, and with that, uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Joe. Well, that's it for today's episode of the show. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have. You can uh, send me an email by heading on over to homemusicstudio1.com forward slash contact. Don't forget to subscribe either in YouTube or in iTunes and also give us a, a review uh, in iTunes. We would uh, much appreciate it. That helps other people find the show. And then lastly, if, uh, if you haven't yet joined us in the online community of literally thousands that are signed up for my free weekly newsletter, you can head on over to freerecordingtools.com, throw your name and your email address in there. And just as a thank you from me to you and a welcome for being part of the online community, I will get out to you right away uh, the ebook that Joe mentioned entitled Understanding Compression in the Home Music Studio. That answers one of the biggest questions that I get and will help uh, really take your recording to the next level, help give you more information to uh, learn how to produce professional audio even on a limited budget. Again, head on over to freerecordingtools.com. Until next time, this is David Maxey with Home Music Studio One.